Talofalava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up, PNG Minister commits to tabling Bougainville referendum. Also, it kind of feels like, like it's a win for all people, despite a lot of the things that my people have gone through. A son of the Canuck peoples dedicates his Harvard Law School success to his community. And later on, what will it take to uphold Pacific languages in Aotearoa? I talked to an advocate to find out. Bougainville is now a step closer to having its referendum go before MPs in Papua New Guinea. In 2019, Bougainvillians voted 97.7% in favour of independence from PNG in a non-binding referendum that was put in place by the peace agreement, which officially ended nine years of bloody civil war. MPs will now be required to ratify the referendum. The Minister of Bougainville Affairs, Manasse Makiba, told Parliament what is needed before the referendum can be tabled. Don Wiseman spoke with RNZ Pacific's PNG correspondent, Scott Whitey. As we expected, the Minister of Bougainville Affairs, Manasa Makiba, made a statement in the PNG Parliament this week and he talked about what was going to happen in terms of the process for the ratification or to head toward the ratification of the Bougainville referendum. What did he tell Parliament? There's been a long, long process prior to this coming to Parliament. So when he spoke in Parliament, he he just outlined possible options that would lead to ratification. And he made it quite clear that this statement is not for the actual ratification or the tabling of the referendum results. And he said there are four, four things that need to be done. He said in order for ratification to happen, Parliament may need to amend the Constitution itself to prescribe a procedure. And that's because... A procedure for that ratification hasn't been actually finalised yet. Number two, that Parliament may choose to amend the standing orders of Parliament to provide for a standalone order to deal with the Bougainville referendum results. So it means that adjusting at least for a very short period the procedures of Parliament to accommodate for the discussion and approval of that ratification. The third point he mentioned was that Parliament may have to prescribe procedures in accordance to what was discussed in Port Moresby between Bougainville and Papua New Guinea. The fourth option that he gave, the Minister gave, was for Parliament to make a sessional order by resolution to deal with the Bougainville referendum. Now, basically, I've, I've consulted with a few lawyers. The sessional order is basically an understanding, an agreement, an understanding of outlining the point that both parties will take towards the ratification of the Bougainville referendum and, and ultimately independence. So those are the four options that the minister put in yesterday. The minister has also has indicated, as expected, that the referendum itself would go to parliament before the end of this year. Yes. It's a very, very short deadline, timeline that he has to satisfy as per the peace agreement. So he's got less than six months to actually get Parliament and get get everybody thinking about voting in favour of everything that Bougainville desires. There was a large contingent of Bougainvillean leaders uh, in Port Moresby for this speech. How did they react? I spoke to the Attorney General Ezekiel Massat and he was, prior to this address, very confident uh, and he said if it was a few years ago he wouldn't have felt as confident as he is now but he said the appointments of 
the ministers for Bougainville Affairs and the attitude of the PNG government uh, has given the Bougainville delegation a lot of confidence that this uh, process will be uh, moved according to plan and, and given the short timeline. The president of Bougainville was also in session along with other members of the Bougainville cabinet, uh, senior ministers within the Bougainville cabinet, and those who were directly involved in the move towards independence for Bougainville. Now, Ezekiel Massat's also talked about the need for young people across the country, right through PNG, including Bougainville, to learn a whole lot more about what happened during the Civil War because it's a long time ago now, nearly 30 years, isn't it? Yes. Well, you know, when, when a lot of people talk about Bougainville in both in Parliament and, and in public forums, people assume that many Papua New Guineans understand what happened during the Bougainville crisis. But there's a whole different generation now, both as youth members of Parliament who have a very slim connection to that history, that shared history. So what uh, Ezekiel Masat is basically saying is that there, there has to be this consistent approach to awareness, Students in universities have to be educated, and and particularly he he emphasized the need for members of parliament to be educated on shared history between Papua New Guinea and and, uh, Bougainville so that they are able to make an informed decision when it comes to voting for the ratification, voting on the ratification. So particular emphasis has been on that group of people parliamentary representatives becoming more aware, more educated on the history as well as the processes involved and needed for parliament to decide on. Last week was a memorable and joyous occasion for Fulbright scholar Joseph Hulwe, who became the first Canuck to graduate from Harvard when he received his law diploma. The young lawyer proudly hails from Siloam, New Caledonia, as well as the villages of Lufi Lufi and Whangamalo in Samoa. He's no stranger to Pacific waves. It was almost a year ago when he spoke with RNZ Pacific on his Fulbright Award that enabled him to study at Harvard Law School, which is among the most top law schools in the world. Joseph says he hopes his success will inspire other young Canucks to empower their communities and demarginalize the native Canuck people in New Caledonia. Speaking to Finau Funua, Joseph shared what it means to be a Harvard graduate and his views on the issue of self-determination in New Caledonia. You're the first Kanak to graduate from Harvard University, and during your graduation ceremony last week, you proudly displayed the Kanak flag as you received your degree. Could you describe that moment? What was it like? How significant is this? Yeah, it's uh, that's a really great question, and my honest answer is. When I'm up there and I hold the flag, I really feel like it kind of feels like like it's a win for all Kanak people. Despite a lot of the things that my people have gone through because of colonization, despite how we're still treated today in our own country, it felt so proud to showcase to the world how much we can achieve. It really felt like I was able to do that for all of us. It felt like I was really carrying all of my family there with me. You're very passionate about the independence movement. That's great. Do you want to talk about that? Sure, sure. Um, I think like any contentious issue that, that affects the freedoms and the liberties of, of people, there are always really strong opinions, and a lot of them are, uh, are really based on your own lived experiences. So, of course, being an indigenous Kanak, coming from a family who have always been pro-independence has really shaped 
the way that I see um, my identity as a Canuck. It shaped the way that I see or see a possible future for Canuck people within New Caledonia. And I can remember, you know, being as young as 13, 14 years old, and my father telling me about um, the particular independence struggles throughout the 1980s in New Caledonia, things like the Uvea hostage crisis, the accords, and how they've been applied, and and how this idea of of, of like a neo-colonial uh, territory existing in a world where they're trying to allow for nations and states to have their own independence, I think was always something that I found quite disconcerting. I found it really strange that a country like France would talk about um, you know equality and liberty and and, and uh, freedom for all, but wouldn't guarantee that to a nation like New Caledonia, where they can see for themselves the effects of colonization on, on an, an indigenous group was really hard for me to stomach, even just from an objective perspective, before I even think about the effects of colonization and how I see it firsthand and, how it, and what it looks like for other Canucks. It's pretty clear that colonization has really disenfranchised a lot of our people. But I think in many ways, young Canucks uh, like me are trying to change the narrative, to effectively try and reverse years and years of colonial rule and, and policy guidelines and directions that have really left us in a pretty poor state. You know, we were the ones who have always been the worst affected by health, by education, by COVID when it, when it hit our country. On one hand, the French government talk about freedom, equality, and all these rights, but they don't guarantee them to, to people who were effectively inherently deserve those rights as well. Harvard, was it very intimidating? Was it very difficult? What, what was it like, the, the lifestyle, the study? The way I would uh, describe Harvard is that it's a place, particularly the law school, where it feels like there's a lot of opportunity. There are people who are doing things and thinking about ideas that I, I would have never thought of myself or, or, I didn't, or I didn't know existed before. There are academics and um, lawyers who are you know, really doing their best to push the, the bell curve and, and move the law in, a, in, you know, in, in certain ways and in all different kinds of areas of, of law. So that was quite inspiring to see. Um, it's also a place where it felt it can feel very overwhelming and I did feel overwhelmed at times. I did feel like sometimes you, you kind of lose yourself in uh, being in a place like, like Harvard because it's, it's, it's a real bubble. Um, it's a place where you meet some really amazing people. I met some, some amazing First Nations people to really connect with, with a lot of not just uh, indigenous communities but also black communities. That was really special to be a part of. But ultimately, it, it can be hard, it can be difficult. There are things you're having to learn that are brand new, but uh, there were was, was some great people that I met that were really supportive, and yeah, it was an amazing experience. Just hearing you talk about meeting First Nations people, mm. was there like a sense of solidarity or something like that? Yes, absolutely. I think that's what, that's what uh, made uh, the experience really memorable, it was just knowing that when you meet other people, other First Nation people, when you meet people from African-Americans or, or Blacks or um, people who are part of the African diaspora, there really is a, a sense of uh, commonality and, and shared struggles and ways. And a lot of them, you know, they were the first uh, or one of the few people in their families to go to university. So a lot of them experienced racism and uh, disenfranchisement. They saw it uh, happen to their own families and their own communities. And for a lot of them, that's why they went to Harvard, because they knew that it was a vehicle uh, to allow them to change not only their, the lives of their families, but the lives of their communities as well. 
it was great to hear about uh, the struggles of, of First Nation peoples on, on their lands. And uh, um, there was some, there was an interesting uh, Supreme Court case happening at the time regarding the adoption of uh, Indigenous uh, children. Uh, it was really interesting to see how uh, Indigenous people um, at Harvard thought about uh, you know, the, you know, how the case got to the Supreme Court, thought about um, the question that Supreme Court justices were asking about the case and what they ultimately thought would happen. So I think that was one of those uh, really surreal moments where you see something in the news and you're with people who understand it you know, intimately and deeply and um, you sort of share that journey with An inaugural Pacific Languages Fono named Goloa was held yesterday in Monaco, Auckland, which came less than a year since the launch of the Pacific Languages Strategy and follows on from this year's New Zealand budget where there's more money being poured into the maintenance of Pacifica languages. Around 300 delegates representing all of the Pacific communities from around Aotearoa gathered at the Fono to hear from Indigenous language champions, innovators and speakers. Long-term prosperity of Pacific languages was the topic of the day, as well as exploring the convergence of technology and education. Joining me on Pacific Waves to talk more about the Fono is the Centre of Pacific Languages trustee, Dr. Ray Siilata. Kia ora and Bulavanaka, Dr. Ray. Can you briefly explain what yesterday's Fono was all about, please? Yeah, uh, kia ora, Nisan Bulavanaka. Uh, great to talk to you today. So yesterday we had the inaugural Pacific Languages Funnel named Koloa, recognising that our, our Pacific languages are treasures that we want to hold on to for future generations. So this, this conference uh, sits under the umbrella of the Centre for Pacific Languages and it's really just a start uh, this year to begin to gather as Pacific peoples to talk about our our efforts around language revitalisation. What were some of the key issues regarding Pacific languages that came through from yesterday's key speakers? I think some of the issues included what we all know, and that is that Pacific languages are becoming endangered. Some of them are highly endangered, and we need to have a high degree of system-level support in order to be able to support uh, the sustainability of these languages and, in many cases, revitalisation of the languages. Can you specify which Pacific languages is highly endangered? Because um, I believe with Samoan language, is the third most spoken language in New Zealand. That's correct, but particularly with our, our constitutional realm languages that in some ways have been colonised for longer, perhaps, we could say. So, Wangahounue, uh, Ngangana Tokelau, and Te Reo Māori Kuki Airani. So those languages are endangered languages. And in many cases, that's also to do with not only the process of, of colonisation and the fact that our parents, grandparents and great-grandparents weren't allowed to speak those languages at school, but also that there are more speakers of those languages here in Aotearoa than there are in those island nations. And so in many ways, language revitalisation has to occur here as well as in the Pacific, in Te Moana Nui Akiwa. Mm. I understand Rotuman is also an endangered language. Is that a result from colonisation as well? Well, you'd probably have to ask Rotumans that, but I would, I would say yes, because that's been a discourse throughout the Pacific 
And so even in Pacific jurisdictions and education, you know, I've been talking about that today with these 60 kayako in the room, that in the Pacific we still have a transitional approach to education where where we teach our students through our languages in, in the heritage languages for the first three years and then we switch to English. And that will not produce bilingualism and biliteracy. So we need an ongoing bilingual provision for our Pacific learners wherever they're living. Mm-mm. So the, the Fono comes less than a year since the launch of the Pacific Languages Strategy back in September 2022. There's now $13.3 million to implement this strategy. How does this Fono help with implementing that strategy when majority of that funding is going towards Pacific media entities and the remaining is going towards an online resource hub? Yeah, totoko. Agree with your question there. Um, I I think, um, you know, the Centre for Pacific Languages is doing a lot of work in the space of uh, language revitalisation with adult communities. So so our adults who are in our, um, mainly nine Pacific language groups who come in to engage in language learning uh, through an online forum. And there's a whole range of different language learning courses that they can begin to either be introduced to the language if they're not speakers and then other courses that take them on. Uh, But to be honest, um, I was disappointed that the funding did not include support, greater support for Pacific language acquisition within educational spaces, not just in the media. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Also, I just wanted to ask, during the formal, were there any discussions around including more Melanesian communities into the languages strategy? I mean, currently the only Melanesian language that's recognised in the Language Week celebrations is Fijian. Uh, and Kiribati and Tuvalu, I think. So, Kiribati uh, is considered Micronesian, isn't it? Yeah, sorry, I was talking about yeah, both yeah. Micronesian and Melanesian. Right. Uh, but I agree with you there. I think I mean, I think we have to bear in mind that the languages strategy is an initial strategy. And of course, there are particular Pacific languages that have been targeted because of their historical connections with Aotearoa New Zealand. So in particular, the Polynesian languages and the whakapapa connections between Tangata Whenua and Tangata Olimuana, as well as the post-colonial connections, in particular with the realm languages, with Samoa, with Tonga. And then those other uh, Micronesian languages who have uh, larger populations living here in Aotearoa. But I would agree with you that hopefully in further iterations of the strategy, there would be a focus on Melanesian languages as well. As different populations increase in Aotearoa, we have to make space for all of them. Just looking towards the future, will this formal be held annually? Uh, we haven't decided on that yet, but hopefully it'll either be annually or biannually. That's, that's the plan. You know, we need a, a kind of groundswell of uh, community support for the revitalisation of our languages. And we need to continue to lobby government for greater system level support, particularly for the languages that are highly endangered. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. You can also download us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts from. So from myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, till fast week four.